Turn to 1 Kings 12 in the Bible you brought with you. If you haven't turned there, or a pew Bible, or a smartphone, or tablet, those are, those are fine too. Just keep Facebook closed for the, time, for the time. 1 Kings 12. But allow me to set up this passage here as I introduce it. A number of years ago, I read a book entitled Good to Great. And Good to Great was about how some companies, uh, certain companies went from being just good to being great companies. In fact, the the book even begins, the book Good to Great even begins saying good is the enemy of great. You know, we think, oh, it's good enough, and good becomes the enemy of great. It's a book by Jim Collins. Anyways, one thing consistent about great companies is their, their CEOs were humble. Their CEOs were humble. Even when they were rich, they were humble. They would look to themselves first when looking to mistakes. They didn't blame others. They looked in the mirror when looking to mistakes. They looked, uh, the word was outside the phrase, outside the window when crediting success. They credited others for success and not themselves. And they called this a type five leader. And those leaders were humble. Uh, Jim Collins in the book says on page 193, shortly before his death, I had the opportunity to meet Dave Packard. Dave Packard, despite being one of Silicon Silicon Valley's first self-made billionaires, he lived in the same small house that he had that he and his wife built for themselves in 1957, overlooking a simple orchard. The tiny kitchen with its dated linoleum and the simply furnished living room bespoke a man who needed no material symbols to proclaim, I'm a billionaire, I'm important, I'm successful. His idea of a good time, said Bill Terry, who worked with Packard for 36 years, was to get some of his friends together to string some barbed wire. Packard bequeathed his $5.6 billion estate to a charitable foundation. And upon his death, his family created a eulogy pamphlet with a photo of him sitting on a tractor in farming clothes. The caption made no reference to his stature as one of the great industrialists of the 20th century. It simply read, David Packard, 1912 through 1996, rancher, etc. There is something that we all admire about humility, don't we? And we all hate about people who simply talk about themselves and their successes. However, it is so easy to talk about our own achievements and our own successes. We all do it. The guy who invented the telegraph was S.F.B. Morse. And Reverend George W. Hervey asked him this question. And he said, Professor Morse, when you were making your experiments yonder in your room in the university, did you ever come to a stand and not knowing what to do? And Professor Morse responded that when he came to those places, he would ask the Lord for more light. He would ask the Lord for more light. And the Lord would provide that light. So when he was testing the telegraph, the first thing that they transmitted was, what God hath wrought, what God hath wrought, crediting the Lord. He says the Lord could have given that knowledge to anyone. The Lord just chose to give it to him. Professor Morris is what Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, would call a type five leader, a type five leader. A type five leader gives credit to other people for success. A type five leader is humble. As we look at Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12, we see that he was far from humble. 
He was not a type 5 leader. As we look at this, as we look at 1 Kings 12, the theme and application is this. Seek the Lord in his wisdom, and we will be all right. Rehoboam sought the wisdom of man, and not the wisdom of the Lord. Seek the Lord in his wisdom, and we will be all right. Rehoboam sought the wisdom of man, and not the wisdom of the Lord. So that's 1 Kings 12. Jennifer just fabulously read that passage. So we'll just jump right in here. And in these 24 verses, we are introduced to Rehoboam. And these 24 verses tell us how the kingdom of Israel is divided. And these 24 verses also tell us how they are told not to go to war with each other. So the country is divided, but they are told not to go to war. And by the way, you can find similar information in 2 Chronicles chapter 10. Just a reminder, we're on this sermon series of forgotten lives of the Old Testament, forgotten people of the Old Testament. And we've talked about many people, so now we're on Rehoboam. And, so, and, and as we look at Rehoboam, we'll see another guy too named Jeroboam. And we'll see uh, a di- about the division of Israel. And this is important for Israelite history. I'm not sure how many people, how many of you know, I'm sure many people don't know, that Israel became a divided nation. And they become a divided nation right here in 1 Kings chapter 12. And they're divided until they're conquered. The northern kingdom is later conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. And then the southern kingdom of Judah is later conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C. They're conquered never to be reunited again, actually, um, in the Old Testament time period. So, in verse 1, it tells us that uh, Jeroboam, I'm sorry, Rehoboam, Rehoboam goes to Shechem because all Israel went to Shechem to make him king. So what you need to know is that Solomon has has died. King David was king, and then he died, and then Solomon was king, and then he died, and now Rehoboam would be the next one in the line of succession. So Rehoboam is to go to Shechem and to be anointed as king. Notice verse 2 introduces us to Jeroboam, though. Jeroboam is the son of Nebat, and Jeroboam was in Egypt where he fled because of Solomon. He was in exile in Egypt because of Solomon. He just was not on good terms with Solomon. But he hears the news of Rehoboam becoming king, and he comes back. By the way, we see this in 1 Kings 11, 26, and 40. And by the way, everything that happens in this chapter is happening because of Solomon's idolatry and Solomon's sin and Solomon rejecting the Lord. It's all happening because of that. In fact, it was prophesied that this would happen. So in verses 4 through 5, Jeroboam comes back and we see conditions which the ten tribes would like before Rehoboam's coronation. Before Rehoboam's coronation, they asked for certain conditions. They would like their load lightened. Their load lightened. In verse 5, he asked them to depart for three days, and Rehoboam, that is, will look into it. By the way, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 7 and verse 21 through 25, and in chapter 9, verse 15, it tells us Solomon's demands. Solomon was putting heavy demands on the people. Uh, and, their, and their demands were too heavy. So in verses 6 through 11, we have the wise words of the older men versus the unwise words of the younger men. Rehoboam sought wisdom. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. But as Rehoboam sought wisdom, he sought the wisdom of the elders, and then he contrasted that with the wisdom of the younger men, and he chose the wisdom of the younger men. The, the elders said, if Rehoboam is a servant... 
they will listen to him. In other words, do what they ask. Lighten the load, and they will listen. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but we are going to see that Rehoboam does not give a gentle answer. In verse 8, it tells us that he forsook the counsel of the elders, and he sought and followed the counsel of those he grew up with. Verse 10 is sarcastic. In verse 10, Rehoboam says, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. In other words, he is saying, My father was weak. Solomon was weak, and so I am going to be stronger. Well, he's going to pay the consequences. Verse 11 says he will intensify the discipline. As you walk through this passage in verses 12 through 15, Rehoboam rejects the counsel of Israel's elders. Someone has said the following. The error of youth is to believe that intelligence is a substitute for experience, while the error of age is to believe that experience is a substitute for intelligence. The error of youth is to believe that intelligence is a substitute for experience, while the error of age is to believe that experience is a substitute for intelligence. Well, Rehoboam is about to reject the experience of the elders, the wisdom of the elders. In verse 12, all the people came back to Rehoboam. Remember, he told Jeroboam and he told the people, come back to me after three days. I'm going to think about this for three days. Come back to me. So they come back. Jeroboam is part of that group. In verse 3, he answered them harshly. Rehoboam did not remember that proverb. A soft voice turns away wrath. He answered them harshly. In verse 14, he spoke to them with the advice of the young men. In verse, in verse 15, it tells us why. It says, this was from the Lord. Solomon and Jeroboam had already known that this would happen. This was already prophesied about. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11 and 31, it's already prophesied that Israel would be divided. That the throne would depart, at least the unity of the kingdom, from Solomon's family. In verses 16 through 20, we see the reaction of the leaders. Rehoboam is overly harsh. The leaders react. In verse 16, it shares the rejection of the other tribes. The other tribes essentially said, what portion do we have in David's tribe? What portion do we have in David's tribe? Remember, there are all these tribes of Israel. And David's tribe, the tribe of Judah, is just one of the tribes. So they all go to their tents. Basically, they say David's tribe is on their own. So verse 17. Those that lived in Judah stayed under Rehoboam. The tribe of Judah stayed under Rehoboam. Verse 18. King Rehoboam sends Adorama. I'm sorry, Adoram, head of the first labor, and he is stoned. Now, that ought to be quite a warning. You know, all the people flee. They go to their own tents. There's about to be a civil war. So Rehoboam thinks, I'll take care of this. I'll send my person, my guy. I got a guy. He's in charge of the forced labor. He'll go. He'll, he'll put this back in order. Uh-uh. He is stoned to death. Rehoboam has to flee to Jerusalem for safety. That's how bad this is getting. The other ten tribes made Jeroboam king. So now you have two kings over Israel. One is Jeroboam. One is Rehoboam. Rehoboam is king over Judah. Jeroboam is king over the southern uh, ten tribes. And they're about to go to war. In verses 21 through 24, we see the aborted attack. Rehoboam assembles 180,000 men to go to war. That's not a small force. 180,000 to go to war. And they're going to go to war with their own people. 
So think back to the United States Civil War. That's about what's to break out. I, I know none of you were alive then. I'm just asking you to remember your history there, okay? So verses 22 through 24, though, have a prophet. A message from Shemaiah, the prophet, that this division is from the Lord. And when Shemaiah, the prophet, speaks to the people saying, don't go to war, the attack is aborted. So right now we see Israelite history and we see under Rehoboam, because of his harshness, because of his rejection of wisdom, we see that Israel is divided. But that doesn't give us a complete picture. To understand a complete picture of why Israel was divided, we have to go a few more chapters. So if you're in your Bibles, turn a few more chapters over to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, verses 21 through 28, we see the real reason this is going on. The real reason that this is going on. So now I'm going to read 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 21 through 28. These seven verses summarize Rehoboam's reign, starting at verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Namai, the Ammonitess. Don't, don't forget that. His mother's name was Namai, the Ammonitess. She is an Ammonite. We're going to come back to that. Verse 22. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. Get this in verse 24. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. That's key as well. The Lord dispossessed all these other local nations because of their abominations. And Israel, under Rehoboam, went right back to them. Actually, even under Solomon. Verse 25. Now it happened... In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Then it happened as often as the king entered the house of the Lord that the guards would carry them and bring them back into the guard's room. So we see the, the epic downfall of Rehoboam. And we see the pagan idolatry going on. And it's really the pagan idolatry which led to Israel's demise. And led to Israel being even defeated by, well not totally defeated, but Shishak the king of Egypt being able to enter in and take the gold shields. And, and the Israel, Israelites being divided. We see in verse 421. Rehoboam was 41 when he became king. He reigned 17 years. Notice a detail. He reigned the city that the Lord chose to put his name. His mother's name was Nama, the Ammonitess. Now we need to park on this Ammonite thing right now. The Moody Bible Commentary shares, This pagan nation east of the Jordan was frequently in conflict with Israel. And you can see this in many, many passages. And Ammonites were specifically forbidden to be part of the assembly of Israel. 
they were forbidden to be part of the assembly of Israel. Rehoboam's failure to follow the Lord was compounded by his mother's pagan influence. And what impacted the king would also have spiritual consequences for the people. Chuck Spindle adds more light on this. He shares this. The name Nama, Nama being Rehoboam's mother, the name Nama means sweetness, pleasantness, which probably described her general disposition. This narrative tells us twice, twice, in verses 21 and 31, so that we will not miss its significance that Rehoboam's mother was the Ammonitess. She was an Ammonite woman with considerable influence. So much so, she convinced her husband to abandon Yahweh for a particularly detestable idol. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. We know that Solomon reigned 40 years. So Rehoboam was nurtured by Nama the Ammonites, the Ammonites, the worshiper of Milcom and Moloch. She worshipped Milcom and Moloch. One archaeologist writes this about these pagan, pagan influences. Moloch was a detestable Semitic deity honored by the sacrifice of children in which they were caused to pass through or into the fire. Palestinian excavations have uncovered evidences of infant skeletons. Infant skeletons in burial places around heathen shrines. Ammonites revered Moloch as a protecting father. No form of ancient Semitic idolatry was more abhorrent than Moloch worship. His mother, Nama, reared her son in the worship of Moloch, and Solomon consented to the practice by building temples to the false god. The sin that mom loved and that dad permitted ensnared the son. So it would come as no surprise that he led his kingdom into the same deadly trap. Think about that. God had purged this evil from these cities. God had saved these cities from, from this evil, evil sin of child sacrifice. And now this king of Israel goes back to it, permits it. We see, as, as if you read the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you will see repeatedly that Israelite kings would make their sons pass through the fire. And that means that they would give in to child sacrifice. Child sacrifice in Israel. If you read through Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, Israel would conquer these cities. And what it seems to be is that God is judging these cities at the hands of the Israelites. And he is likely doing it because, well, actually, he, he says he's doing it because of the abhorrent child sacrifice and temple prostitution that was going on. But now what God saved them from, they are going back to. What God saved them from, they are going back to. Rehoboam is the mighty king of Israel, goes right back to it. And a key application, which we'll park on for a moment, is when God saves us from certain sins, do we go back to them? Do we go back to them? God saves us by the blood of Jesus from sin, and oftentimes we go back to them as well. Verse 22 is key. Judah did evil, evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked God to jealousy more than their fathers. They committed sins. Verse 23 tells us why they did it. They set up high places, ashram, sacred pools. Ashram are wooden symbols of a female deity. That's what they were setting up. They were setting up these sacred wooden symbols of female deities throughout the land. That's what they were getting into. Verse 24, there were male cult prostitutes. They did according to all the nations which the Lord dispossessed. And they fell so far that the king Shishik of Egypt was able to go into Judah, go into Jerusalem, and steal the gold shields that Solomon had made. 
And they had fallen so far that Rehoboam replaced them with bronze shields. Their wealth has decreased that much. Let's make some applications. We must listen to our elders. We see right here that Rehoboam neglected the wisdom of the seniors. Not the seniors, of the elders. Don't know how old they were at that point, but they were the elders. He neglected their wisdom. Here's a big, big, big major application. We must only serve the Lord. It seems that Rehoboam's mother was this pagan, and we definitely see Rehoboam got into this, uh, this, this, cultic, this cultic pagan influence. We must only serve the Lord. Now, we may think, well, we don't have idols like that. We don't do things like that. But we do have our own idols. Worship is our response to what we value most. What do we value most? What do we worship? Who is on the throne in our life? Is it Jesus that we bow to, or is it other things? Prestige can be an idol. Is that an idol in our life? Money, obviously, can be an idol. What about the desire for nice things? Nothing wrong with the desire until it's more important than the Lord in our life. Do we desire uh, nice restaurants and nice clothes and nice vacations and nice cars and nice books and nice shelves and nice desks and nice jewelry and nice watches and nice clocks and nice computers and nice televisions and you fill in the blank? Do we put our desires for nice things over our desire for the Lord? Is the Lord enough? Can we live out Psalm 42 and Psalm 63? As a deer pants for streams of living water, so a soul pants for the Lord. Is the Lord enough? Is he enough? In chapter 14, verse 24, it says that Judah under Rehoboam did all of the abominations of the nations which they dispossessed. Are we different from the world? James chapter 4, verse 4 says that friendship with the world is enmity. That means enemies with the Lord. We are too content in the church across the United States being like the world. We got content thinking the world's values were our values. They're not the same. They're not at all the same. Are we content just being in the world? We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be different. We're to go into the world and rescue people out, leading them to Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Romans 12, 2 says to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Are we being conformed to the world? Are we being, or are we being transformed by the renewing of our mind? That's a major application here. We need to be transformed by Jesus. Jesus must be Lord of all. Lord of all. When we seek the Lord in his wisdom, we will be all right. Rehoboam sought the wisdom of man and not the wisdom of the Lord. Rehoboam puffed himself up like a puffer fish with pride. You know, that's a real fish. I have about it in the notes. Um, there's a fish. You know, he's called the puffer fish. Probably you have seen it many times or at least on TV. You know, but the, it's also called the blowfish, the puffer fish or the blowfish. And they look kind of cute to watch, but they're not just cute. When, there's enemy, when, it, when, it, when an enemy fish comes around, they puff themselves up to make themselves seem bigger than they really are and intimidate the, the, other, the other fish. But that's not all they do. They have a toxin within their body that is uh, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. And there's, there's enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult human beings. 
Enough poison in a puffer fish, which is interesting because we sold them when I worked at the pet store. What were we trying to do to our customers? <laughs> Anyways, um, maybe they removed the poison. But there's enough poison in that puffer fish to kill 30 adult human beings. Like puffer fish, human beings can blow themselves up with pride and arrogance to make themselves look bigger than they are. And this pride can become toxic, toxic to a marriage a church, or a friendship. No wonder the late Bible scholar John Stott once said this, Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. So are you surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Or are you being like Rehoboam, seeking all the ways of the world, not making a stand, saying that Jesus is Lord of your life? Where are you at? Are you surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you that your word does not gloss over the sins of your people. We read about these things, just like we read about Rehoboam and Jeroboam today, David a few weeks ago, last week, and and his sins and his uh, son trying to take the kingdom. Certainly we read about Cain, we read about many others, even Abram's faults and failures. Lord, may we learn from them, and may we make you Lord of our life, surrender to you. May we be humble, Lord, may we be humble. Lord, you are either Lord of all, or you are not Lord at all. Be Lord of all in our lives. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here right now who has never surrendered to you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where they confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe in you as the only Savior. Trust in you and commit to you. May today be the day to firmly make the decision to be with you in order to become like you and to learn and do all that you say and then arrange our affairs around you. Lord God, help us all arranging our affairs around you. In Jesus' name, amen. During this closing song, if the Lord has stirred your heart and you need to come forward in prayer, you're welcome to come forward to these altars. And the altar up here on the right is an altar that you could come forward if you just want to pray by yourself. And you, don't want, you just want some alone time with the Lord. Just come to this altar and we'll just leave you alone. If you want to come forward and you would like somebody to come forward and pray with you, you can come forward to this altar here on your left. And maybe a friend or family member can come and pray with you. Or one of our elders um, can come and pray with you at this altor. Amen. Let's all stand and sing.